This morning, our text is the Old Testament lesson from Joshua chapter 3. Israel has left Shittim, which is just east of the Jordan River, and they moved into the region of the river itself, right up to the river, if you will. And so, at this point in the narrative, finally, after centuries of waiting, the great promise of the land, a promise which goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12, is about to be realized. This is one of the great momentous points in Israel's history, in the life of the people of God. And we'll look at this chapter today under three headings. Three headings. Uh, there are two stages of preparation, which I will creatively call stage one and stage two. And then finally, the crossing. Stage one, stage two, and the crossing. Stage one, stage two, and the crossing. So first, stage one. Israel is camped near the river. They receive orders from their officers, their administrative leaders, telling the people, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you're to move out from your positions and you're to follow it. And the Ark, the Ark is the central focus of this chapter. And that's because Israel's God is the central actor in the text. The Ark is God's dwelling place, His habitation, His house, the place where His glory rests. It's something like a mobile throne. Now, God, of course, is present everywhere, but He is present uniquely. He's present in redemptive, saving power in the ark. Simply because God is present everywhere does not mean He can't be present in a special, unique, and powerful way in the ark. Now remember, inside the ark, there were three things. There were the tablets of the law, there was a sample of the manna which fell in the wilderness. And there was Aaron's rod which had budded when his authority was challenged. Notice the title of the ark. It's called the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Your God. So you have three things here which could not be more intimately related. The ark the covenant, and the sovereign Lord himself. The Lord, and remember, the, term, the word Lord is God's personal name revealed to Moses. It, when you see Lord in your Bibles, it's a different word than when you see God in your Bibles. The word Lord translates the name Yahweh that God revealed to himself to Moses and the Lord establishes His relationship with us by means of covenant. It's the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And this means that when, the, when God relates to us, when the Lord interacts with His people, He doesn't relate to us just willy-nilly. He establishes a covenant. And a covenant is, is an ordered relationship. It has structure to it. 
It's a blood-sealed, oath-bound relationship. And hence, God's very presence to you is a covenantal presence. And that covenantal presence is enshrined and it's manifest in the ark. This is one of the deep reasons we Reformed have always emphasized, perhaps ad nauseum to others, the covenant. Because there's absolutely no way of relating to God. As creatures, that's not shaped by covenant. The presence of the Lord is the presence of the covenant. Thus, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And the Ark, the text continues to tell us, is carried by the Levitical priests. They would transport it with poles so as not to touch it. Because the fearsome glory of the Lord of the Covenant dwelt uniquely in the Ark. And the people are told in the text that as they move out and follow it, their eyes are to be fastened on the Lord, but they're to also keep their distance. The text says about a thousand yards, a little over half a mile. And while the ark is holy, that's probably not the point here. The point here is probably practical because verse 4 says, this is how you will know which way to go because you have never been this way before. So you have to sort of imagine the scene. Hundreds of thousands of people, plus their possessions, plus their livestock, have to cross under the direction of the ark. Well, then you have to back up a little bit. There needs to be some order and visibility, and that requires an appropriate distance. Back up, Joshua says, a half a mile or so, because you've not gone this way before. And this will allow the people to see the work that the Lord is about to perform on their behalf. And to this end, Joshua tells them in verse 5 that they have to consecrate themselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things, wonders among you. He had done wonders in Egypt through the plagues. He had done them at the Red Sea and he had done them in the wilderness and another wonder remains for them to enter the, the land of Canaan. And so if we want to see God's glory, we must consecrate ourselves. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Our ability to see what God is doing, to see his hand, depends somewhat on the state and condition of our heart. We have to set ourselves apart and purify our spiritual vision to see and to apprehend the mighty works of God. And so Joshua finally tells the priests, okay, take the Ark of the Covenant, pass on ahead of the people, and they do so. And that brings us to the second stage of the preparations. The author is being very deliberate here, taking his time for effect, uh, building up to the conclusion or the, uh, the apex of the passage. So in verse 7, the Lord tells Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel. He's going to exalt Joshua. The word means to make him great. And it refers back to the call of Abram. Again, when God called Abram, 
in Genesis 12 to this land, the very land that Israel is about to possess, the land which Abraham wandered in as an alien and a stranger hundreds of years before, God told Abram at the time of his call, I will make your name great. And so the promise to Abram is now being fulfilled in Joshua. God will exalt him so that Israel will know, the text says, and we saw this a couple weeks ago, that I am with you as I was with Moses. The miracle of the crossing is going to be like a seal of approval on Joshua as a leader. And he's going to need this to lead the nation in a series of upcoming military campaigns. So Joshua gives a little further instruction to the priests, a little bit more. They're carrying the ark, and when they reach the edge of the waters, they're to go and stand in the river. And then you get the middle passage of the text, beginning in verse 9. Joshua turns, and now he addresses the Israelites, not the priests, the nation in general. And he begins and he says, come here, listen to the words of the Lord your God. There are two grand things here in this text. It's, it, the first is, our eyes have to be fixed on the ark. The whole nation is to be riveted on the ark. But it's not simply that their eyes are to be fixed on the Lord, the Lord of the covenant in the ark. They must as well hear the word of the Lord from the lips of His chosen mediator. Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. These are the two things the church needs. The presence of God without the Word of God is blind. And the Word of God without the presence of God is impotent. Word and Spirit, Word and presence, they're forever joined together in the, in the ways of God, in the economy of God with His people, and they're profoundly fused together in this text. God is present in the ark, and Israel's to be fixed in their vision on the ark. But that's actually not enough. They have to listen. And so in verse 10, Joshua says, this is how you'll know that the living God is among you, and that He will certainly drive out before you the seven nations that are listed there in verse 10. Three things Israel's to know up to this point in the text. They're to, they're to keep their eyes on the ark so they know which way to go. And they're to know that by Joshua's being made great, the Lord is with him as he was with Moses. And they're also to know that the living God is among them and not just among their leadership, not just among Joshua. And he will certainly dispossess all the nations. And so when Joshua addresses the people, he encourages them and he calls their God the living God here. And this is a, um, a biting critique of the Canaanite gods, the gods of the seven nations listed in the text. Even as the battle between Moses and Pharaoh was really a war between the Lord and the gods of Egypt, so the conquest of the land is a holy war between the Lord and the plethora of idols of the inhabitants. 
And these nations that are listed in the text in Deuteronomy 7, they're called nations more numerous and mightier than thou. Humanly speaking, this is a military suicide mission for Israel. Now, it was more, although it was a morally degraded culture, Canaanite civilization was technically, militarily, far advanced over Israel. Remember, Israel's a wandering tribe of nomads. They just come through 400 years of slavery in the last generation. It's not like they were on the cutting edge of military warfare development. But they had one weapon, and it was all they needed. That's the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And so in verse 11, Joshua encourages them. See, he says, or look, or behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. There's that phrase again. the, The phrase here, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord... The prepositions are added in your Bible. The phrase is actually the Ark of the Covenant, comma, the Lord. So that's how intimate the connection between the Ark and the Lord is, that the Ark can be called the Lord. And notice, notice what's added here. Now it's the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Where have we heard that? Well, that was Rahab's confession last week. And again, this means that the Lord and not the Canaanite gods is the Lord over this particular land. And that means He gives it to whomever He wills. So, the Lord of all the earth will go before them into the Jordan. God fights for you. He fights for his people. He goes ahead of them. And we can only wage this warfare under his banner, under the Lord of all the earth, under the ark of the covenant of the presence of this God. And so Joshua tells them exactly what's going to happen. As soon as the priests who carry the ark, as soon as their feet touch the, the Jordan, the waters downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. That's the amazing thing or the wonder they're told to prepare for. And we finally come then to the crossing. They break camp. And the priests are carrying the Ark of the Covenant ahead of them. And here the Ark is the Covenant. It's the Ark, the Covenant, literally. So the Ark is the Covenant is the Lord. That's what that phrase means, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And then after all this buildup, Just when, as readers, we're ready for the crossing, the writer delays one more time to try and heighten the effect of what's about to happen. He adds this little side remark, parenthetical remark, verse 15. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest. So this tells us that Israel's crossing at the worst possible time. In the late spring, after the melting of the snow and the spring rains. Now, the Jordan's usually not that formidable. It's, nor, it's about a, normally about 90 to 100 feet wide. But when flooded, it could be a couple hundred yards wide to a mile wide, 
with the floodwaters going over into all sorts of brush. Normally, the Jordan's only 3 to 10 feet deep at this point, where Israel crosses. But now it would be much, much deeper. In addition, at this time of year, these are rapidly moving waters. The river descends very steeply. Remember, Jericho is one of the lowest cities, if not the lowest, altitude in the world. And so the river descends steeply from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea, or the Salt Sea. So it's one thing for two spies to swim across the Jordan when it's not flooded, because obviously they did that. That's how you had to get across to spy. But moving a whole nation in these conditions is not humanly possible. So verse 15 is really important if we're to understand the amazing thing, the wonder which occurs next. As the priest's feet finally touched the water's edge, the water upstream stopped flowing. It piles up in a heap, just as it did at the Red Sea. This is a sort of new exodus. It's cut off at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan. This is about 18 miles north of where Israel's standing. So completely cut off, 18 miles north, the rest of the water flows down to the Dead Sea. Now, it's interesting. This may be a wonder, an amazing sign with no natural intermediate cause. It's possible. But the Jordan in the region of Adam has been cut off and stopped flowing. It's been cut off by earthquakes. It's been cut off by mudslides. It was cut off by a mudslide as recently as 1927. So this is an event which, in fact, has happened on other occasions. So perhaps God supernaturally timed the event, or perhaps he did it just by his own hand without any natural mediation. It hardly matters. The point is that when the priest's feet touched the water, the water was cut off at Adam. So this is the amazing wonder the people cross over opposite Jordan. And the priests, verse 17 tells us, the priests who carried the ark, they stopped. They stopped like the water stopped. In the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by. Now this would have taken hours and hours. And great faith. Because should the waters have resumed flowing, many would have died. And finally the text tells us the whole nation. Notice, that's really important. Israel's no longer a loose tribal federation. They're, they're being forged into a nation now. This is one of the first times that, that the word nation is used in the book. The whole nation completes the crossing on dry ground. And so we have an event here. It's singular in Israel's history. It's not the sort of thing that happens frequently. But in it, God is glorified 
And he confirms his chosen leader. He confirms his presence both with Joshua and the people. And by doing that, he confirms the gift of the land. So, what does this passage say to us today? Here I want to make three brief applications. The first one is negative. We cannot, as I mentioned before, and this is often done, but we cannot draw a straight line from this text to our lives. This is a tremendous danger with Old Testament Bible reading among folks. <coughs> For one thing, this is a unique, one-time, unrepeatable event in, in the life of Israel. So to talk about, as preachers are wont to do, the Jordans in our own lives, the obstacles we have to surmount with God's help and the like, is really not quite on point. Um, Though if we understand it rightly, it has its place. I'll return to that in a moment. But I do think we have to resist the danger of going straight from the text to ourselves because one thing is bypassed when we do that. And that one thing is Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the text. The text is about him well before it is about us. The second thing we should note here is that this is a corporate and it's a liturgical crossing. That is, it's about the people of God together publicly, gathered around the ark, beginning their mission of holy war. And so in this respect, the text points to the centrality of the public worship of God. Remember, the ark, as, as we said before, the ark has the law, the manna, and Aaron's scepter in it. And that means the presence of God comes to you, the presence of God comes to us through word, the law, through sacraments, the manna, and through the, the ministerial authority, Aaron's rod. And so gathered here in the presence of God around word and sacrament and ministry, we are engaged in holy warfare for the kingdom of God. This, I submit, is the central application of this text for the church in the New Testament. Admittedly, it doesn't preach as well as overcoming all the Jordans in your life. But I think it has the virtue of being grounded in the actual text. But let me say this. Just because we can't skip straight from the text to our lives doesn't mean the text is irrelevant for us. This text is fulfilled Every Lord's Day when we gather here and we hear the word of God and God feeds us with manna from heaven and his presence is in our midst. The text is very much for you. But it's for you in Jesus Christ in whom all the promises of God are yea and amen. Another way to think of this is the story of Israel is not a collection of devotional material for our own well-being. It's a narrative which concludes in Jesus Christ and the establishment of the church. And in that context, we are blessed and encouraged. So, if the text is for us in Jesus Christ, it points us to him as the incarnate ark. 
Jesus is the incarnate ark of God. This is what John means in his gospel when he says, he, we saw the glory of God and he tabernacled among us. And not only is he the incarnate ark, he's the greater Joshua. The book of Hebrews tells us Joshua failed to give the people rest in Canaan. And when Jesus comes as the greater Joshua, he will lead us to rest in the new heavens and the new earth. So both the ark in the text and the mediator Joshua are fulfilled in Jesus. So this means just as Israel was to listen to the word of God from the mouth of Joshua, we must listen. We must not refuse to hear Christ who now speaks to us from heaven in Holy Scripture. Just as they were to fix their eyes on the ark and not on the river, so we are called to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're a wandering sort of people. Our hearts and our eyes, we want to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. And not on the storms in your life. If that's the point, then yes, I think we could preach the text that way. Because Jesus is the ark of God. He's the mediator who speaks the word of God to us. And finally, just as they were to follow the ark, Jesus is called our forerunner, our leader, our captain whom we follow into the heavenly places. We're raised with him and seated with him and we follow eventually into what Canaan points to, the new heavens and the new earth. So the greater Joshua and the ark of the covenant of the Lord are in your midst. He's affected your exodus from sin. He leads us through the wilderness of life. He will lead us to the land of rest. So the text is simple in its application. Hear Him. Fix your eyes on Him. Follow Him as you seek to make His fame and His renown, His royal right over all the land, the whole earth, known. Amen.